During the four Sundays in February, we're in a series of lessons rediscovering evangelism, what the Bible teaches about being salt and light. Call it what you will, sharing our faith, witnessing, reaching the lost. We are taking a fresh, in-depth look at Jesus' last words, His commission to us, His followers. Two Sundays ago, we began this series by redefining evangelism where we discover that we must be good news before we can ever share good news. In today's world, more often than not, the unbeliever must first believe the messenger before he or she is ready to believe the message. Last Sunday's second lesson dealt with relationships in evangelism. Statistics show that 85-90% to of all new believers make their commitment to Jesus as the forgiver and leader of their lives as a direct result of the efforts of a family member or friend. In other words, relationships. Again, most unbelievers are attracted first to the messenger before they are ever interested in the message. They must first see the good news visualized before they'll ever be ready to hear the good news verbalized. That's why as we cross over into the world's culture, it's critical for us to maintain a healthy balance between having contact with unbelievers and at the same time having contrast from an unbeliever. On the one hand, if we have contrast, light as Jesus calls it, without contact, salt, we may have our message but we don't have our audience. We'll become a spiritual porcupine. <laughs> no unbeliever is going to want to even be around us. We're so prickly. <laughs> On the other hand, if we have contact, salt, without contrast, light, we may have our audience, but we don't have a message any longer. We become a spiritual chameleon. Just kind of blend right in with the world. Nobody can see that there's any difference in our morals, values, beliefs, and behavior. We must strive to maintain a balance of both salt and light contact and contrast, love and truth. If you missed either of these first two lessons, I would encourage you to give a listen online at our website or our Facebook page, or if you prefer, you may order a free CD at the bottom of that communication card, that bulletin flap that Craig just mentioned. That brings us to our third lesson today, Resistance to Evangelism. Evangelism may happen naturally through the webs of our relationships with unbelieving family, friends, neighbors, work associates, schoolmates, and so on. However, evangelism does not happen without some resistance. Here in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells the parable of the sower, perhaps the most recognized of all of His parables. Follow along in your Bible. We're going to read this together this morning. So follow along as I read. Matthew 13, verse 1, it says, That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around Him that He got into a boat and sat in it while all the people stood ashore. Then He told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns which grew up and choked the plants. 
Still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop 160 or 30 times what was sown. He who has ears, let him hear. Now the good thing here is that we don't have to guess as to the meaning of this parable of the sower because Jesus Himself offers a very clear explanation of this same parable starting down at verse 18. So follow along with me there. Matthew 13, verse 18. Jesus says, Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The one who received the seed that fell on rocky places is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. The one who received the seed that fell among thorns is the man who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. But the one who received the seed that fell on good soil is the man who hears the word and understands it. He produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. In a nutshell then, we have three major components that make up the parable of the sower. The first would be the seed, which is the message of the kingdom according to verse 19. In the parallel passage in Luke chapter 8, Jesus says in verse 11, the seed is the Word of God. Simply put, the seed is the Bible. More specifically, it's the good news of God's plan of salvation through Jesus Christ. Next, we have the sower, who is described in verse 3, a farmer went out to sow his seed. It's pretty obvious from the context of this parable that the sower is anyone who sows seed. More specifically, anyone who shares the good news of God's plan of salvation through Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, we have the soil, which is described in verse 19 when anyone hears the message about the kingdom. So the soil is the hearer. More specifically, the heart of the hearer, or as verse 20 puts it, the one who received the seed. That is the recipient of the good news of God's plan of salvation through Jesus Christ. And so, there you have it. The seed, the good news, the sower, the believer who shares the good news, and the soil, the unbeliever who receives the good news. That pretty well sums up the three major components of the parable of the sower. It shouldn't surprise us then to realize that this resistance to evangelism that we're talking about this morning comes from these same three sources. Let me explain. Let's begin by talking about resistance and the seed. Again, the seed is the message about the kingdom or the Word of God. Let me ask them, what's wrong with the seed? Nothing. (laughs) Nothing is wrong with the seed. The good news of God's plan of salvation through Jesus Christ, the gospel, I mean, that's truth. And in fact, there's nothing, absolutely nothing erroneous about it. In fact, the Apostle Paul had this to say about the gospel. Let's read Romans 1 and verse 16 out loud together. Would you read it with me? I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. There's nothing broken about that. (laughs) Nothing needs to be fixed here. So what part then does the seed play in resistance to evangelism? Well, let me give you the answer and then I'll explain it. Fill in the blank there in your notes. Beware of 
the counterfeit seed, Satan's weeds. Beware of the counterfeit seed, Satan's weeds. Right here in Matthew 13, in fact, Jesus tells the parable of the weeds. Follow along in your Bible as I read it, okay? Matthew chapter 13, we're now going to go to verse 24. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while everyone was sleeping, his enemies came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the weeds sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered. Because while you're pulling up the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at that time I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Now again, we don't have to worry about the explanation for this parable because Jesus explains it Himself starting down in verse 36. Let's go there and we'll read these verses. Matthew 13, verse 36, Jesus says, Then He left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to Him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. And He answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will weed out of His kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Okay, once again, beware of the counterfeit seed, Satan's weeds. While we are sowing the good seed, the message about the kingdom, the Word of God, Satan is busy sowing his counterfeit seed. His weeds, half-truths, and lies. And as the enemy, the devil, is resisting our evangelism efforts with his phony, mixed-up, bogus seed. And believe me, Satan is a master counterfeiter. As Jesus said, these weeds, this counterfeit seed, will, will grow right alongside the good seed until Jesus comes again to gather the harvest. So what exactly are these weeds that Satan is sowing to resist evangelism? I ran across this video clip by Francis Chan about the two scariest lies that Satan has sown and is sowing in today's world. And I think he nails it. Let's watch this together. I believe the two scariest lies on the earth right now that are so prevalent are number one, you are a good person. And number two, because God is a loving God, He will not punish. I believe those are lies that are told every day all around our country and people are believing them. Number one, that you're a good person, that we're all good people. 
Every funeral you go to, you hear people say, he was a good person, she was a good person, they're in a better place. And we have this belief that, you know what? I do more good than bad, and I, I do a lot of good deeds. I think by nature, I'm a good person. The reason why that's a lie is because God says so. And in Romans chapter 3, he explains that all of us are sinners. None of us are good. In fact, in, in Romans chapter 3, he, he says that all, both Jews and Greeks, are all under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. In, in verse 23, it says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Okay, you've got the world and probably many of your friends and maybe even your own heart and feelings telling you, I'm a good person. And then you have the Word of God where God says, well, when I look at the world, I look down and I don't see anyone righteous. Not even one. I see their sin. And I see, he says, and the wages of sin is death. They all deserve this punishment. You've got to remember the things that God has done in history. Like when he looked at the world in, in Genesis chapter 6, and he says, gosh, I'm grieved. Look at the world. They're all so evil. I'm just going to flood the world and destroy them all. I'm sure there were people on the earth back then saying, I'm a good person. I feel like I'm a good person. All my friends say I'm a good person. But God looks at the world and says, there, there's no one righteous there. I'm going to destroy them. Except for Noah. Uh, I'll save him and his family. Everyone else, I'm going to flood. I'm going to destroy the whole world. You see, and it goes with that second lie that is so destructive, where nowadays people are saying, how could a loving God punish? There's no such thing as hell. I mean, God's not really going to punish me at the end of my life. Well, well again, look at his actions. Would a loving God flood the whole earth? Yes, he would. Because he's a God of justice and a God of wrath also. And again, you look, at, you look at the book of Revelation. It's all about, look at what this loving God does. In Revelation 20, it says, in verse 10, it says, The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So to say God is not a God who would punish, here he is tormenting someone, you know, the beast specifically, and the false prophet, you know, is saying, you know what, they, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's God. And then it says later on in verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Okay, so you have this lie that everyone's telling you. You know what? If God's a loving God, He, he, he wouldn't punish. He, and yet you look at the book of Revelation, and people say, well, that's, that's old school. No, it's the book of Revelation. It's talking about the things that are going to happen. And so at some point, we've got to say, who's the authority? Is it the culture nowadays that says, you know what? There's no punishment for sin. God's a loving God. He's not a God of wrath anymore. He's changed. You know, or is it the Word of God? God that says, you know what, yes, He is a loving God, but He's also a God of wrath. There will be a day of punishment. Look, these are two very destructive lies. Number one, that you're a good person. And number two, that God does not punish. 
we have to look at God's word and say, well, that's contrary to what this book says. And because of that, we all need this salvation from God. So the world's trying to teach you, the Satan himself is trying to teach you that, look, there's no punishment and you're a good person. This way you don't have to be saved from anything. And what the Bible says is, no, we need Jesus. We need what he did on the cross for us. We need to be saved by him. I think he nails it. <laughs> have you ever heard those lies? No. Oh yeah, I have too. Or of greater concern, have you ever believed those lies? <laughs> and these are only two of the many, many untruths or half-truths that Satan has sown and is sowing. What then can we do about Satan's lies, his counterfeit seed? What we need, I think, is a little weed killer. <laughs> The Apostle Paul put it this way, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5. We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to expose counterfeit arguments. We destroy every proud obstacle that would keep people from knowing God. We capture these rebellious thoughts and bring them into alignment with the truth in Christ. The bottom line is we just need to continue to sow the good seed, the truth. Straight from the Bible, God's Word. And as we're doing so, we need to be aware of the counterfeit seed that's out there, Satan's weeds. And we bring the truth alongside those counterfeit seeds so people can see that's not what God said. This is the truth. Believe it. Not these lies that are so prevalent. So the first source of resistance to evangelism comes from the seed. Not the seed of truth, not the Word of God, of course, the Bible, but the counterfeit seed, the lies and the half-truths that Satan sows. Number two, let's talk about resistance and the sower. Jesus begins the parable of the sower with these words in Matthew 13, verse 3. A farmer went out to sow his seed. This farmer, this sower is any believer who actively scatters seed among unbelievers. In other words, the sower is you. The sower is me. As Christians, we're expected to share the good news of God's plan of salvation through Jesus Christ with those who are lost. We are the sowers. Let's read 2 Corinthians 5, verses 19 and 20 out loud together. Read this with me. God has given us the work of sharing the good news of His plan of salvation. We are commissioned to speak for Christ. Again, that's us. We are all commissioned to speak for Christ. Again, we're the sowers. And the only way the seed gets sown, the only way the good news is passed along to unbelievers is through you, me. There's a legend which recounts the return of Jesus to glory after His time here on earth. And even in heaven, He bore the marks of His earthly pilgrimage with its cruel cross and shameful death. The angel Gabriel approached Jesus and said, Master, you must have suffered terribly for the people down there. I did, Jesus replied. And Gabriel continued, Do the people know all about how you love them and what you've done for them? Oh no, said Jesus, not yet. Right now, only a handful of people in Palestine know. Gabriel was perplexed. Then what have you done, he asked, to let everyone know about your love for them? 
Jesus answered, I've asked Peter, James, and John, and a few more friends to tell other people about me. Those who are told will in turn tell others about me, and my story will be spread to the farthest reaches of the globe. Ultimately, all humankind will have heard about my life, my death, my resurrection, of everything that I have done. Gabriel frowned, looked rather skeptical. He knew well what poor stuff people are made of. Yes, he said, well, what if Peter and James and John grow weary? What if the people who come after them forget? What if way down in the 21st century, people just don't tell others about you? Haven't you made any other plans? And Jesus answered, haven't made any other plans. I'm counting on them. And 21 centuries later, Jesus still has no other plan. He's counting on you. He's counting on me. So what resistance then do we as sowers offer to evangelism? What hinders us from effectively sharing the good news with unbelievers? I'd like to hear from you right now. Talk to me. Fear. Fear, okay, that's a good one. Fear's a good one. They won't like me. Yeah, maybe they won't like me, somebody, whatever. Craig? Don't know what to say. You don't know what to say, okay. Anything else that keeps you from sharing your faith? Or you might lose a friend. You might lose a friend, yep. Certainly. Well, let me kind of summarize it. I think all that's good. But let me summarize our resistance to sowing under these seven headings. The first would be fear. Because I think it's the biggest of them all. And those fears come in all shapes and sizes, by the way. There's the fear of the unknown. I've never done it before. There's the fear of inadequacy. I don't think I know enough. There's the fear of rejection. I may lose friends over this. A fear of contamination. If I get out there among the world, I may get soiled. I might start acting like they act. There's a fear of Christians. I may be understood. They may point finger and say, "Man, you're a Jesus freak. You're a you know, you're a radical." A fear of failure. What if I don't succeed? A fear of ridicule. I might get teased or even worse, persecuted because of my faith. Fear. Fear is a huge one that we have to deal with. The next would be isolation. Isolation is simply what I mean is we, the longer we're Christians, you understand, the less contact we have with those outside these walls. This is especially a difficult one for me as a pastor because you're my family and you're my friends. And I have to intentionally and purposefully build relationships because I don't have in the natural world, the flow of my life, I don't have the ability to be around non-Christians unless I take that opportunity to make that happen. And I think this whole thing of isolation, we get into holy huddle. (laughs) And the longer we're Christians, the less non-Christian friends and contacts we have. But we have to continue to reach out beyond that. And then there's conformity. I may conform to the world in its ways, thereby losing my own contrast. Or how about tradition? Because tradition tells us, well, it's the pastor's job to do evangelism. I mean, that's what we hire him for. You know, he's our hired gun, and we point him in the direction and pull the trigger and expect him to do the work. And if he doesn't do the work well enough, then let's fire him and hire somebody else to do it. That's happening in churches, folks, all across the world. Yeah. Busyness would be the next one that I would mention. 
We're so busy. It's the bowl from last week's lesson, Matthew 5, verse 15. You don't light a lamp and put it under a bowl. It has to do with the busyness of our lives. Busy, busy, busy. I think one of the biggest delusions that Satan has poured out on our lives in this culture right now that we live in is that we've got to be busy. We're just running here and there. We're so frantically out of breath all the time. We don't take the time. We're too busy. The opposite of that would be laziness. That's the bed from last Sunday's lesson in Luke 8 and verse 16. And then finally, I would list apathy. We've lost the sense of urgency for evangelism. I feel little or no compassion for the loss. That's so easy to get to that place where you know, I just really don't care. And, And sometimes we're looking at somebody's eyeball to eyeball that doesn't know Jesus. And it doesn't even cross our mind. That person is headed to hell. If I don't speak up, if I don't say a word, but apathy just brings us down. So fear, isolation, conformity, tradition, busyness, laziness, and apathy. These are seven ways that we as sowers are resistant to evangelism. I wonder which one of those seven, as you look at that list right now, which one of those seven do you struggle with the most? I really want you to think about that. Because I think it's important for us to identify this is where I need to work in my life. I'm just too busy all the time. Or you know, I'm too much in isolation. Or I've got all these fears. Whatever it happens to be, whichever one of those seven, I hope that you'll identify that for yourself because you've got to get over that. You've got to work through that to begin to spread the good news. So the second source of resistance to evangelism comes from the sower. And that's you and me. The third source of resistance has to do with the soil. So we pointed out earlier in today's lesson, the soil is the hearer. More specifically, the heart of the hearer. Or as verse 20 puts it, the one who received the seed, that is, the recipient of the good news of God's plan of salvation through Jesus Christ. Now as we read through this parable of the sower, we find four different kinds of soil. Did you notice that? Four different kinds of hearts that receive the good news as it is sown. The first is the hard heart. Matthew 13 verse 4 tells us as he, the sower, was scattering seeds, some fell along the path. The path is the soil that has never been prepared or cultivated to receive seed. And as it says in Jesus' explanation in verse 19, this is when anyone hears the message and does not understand it. The path would be the totally unchurched, the pagan. And again, it's the unbeliever with a hard, calloused heart. And what happens to the seed that's sown along the path? Verse 4 tells us the birds came and ate it up. And Jesus clarifies that in verse 19. The evil one, the devil, comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. So how can we reach the hard-hearted person? Their resistance, I think, is minimized by visualization. We must build a caring, loving relationship with them. We must allow the love of God to flow through our lives. This is the second commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Why? Because they'll first believe in the messenger. They'll first believe in you or me before they'll ever be receptive to the message. The soil, the heart, must be cultivated, watered, weeded, fertilized. The hard heart. The next is the hasty heart. 
Matthew 13 verse 5 tells us some fell on rocky places. And the rocky soil is ground that's only been partially prepared. It's shallow. And notice the hasty response in verse 5. It sprang up quickly. And in verse 20, at once receives it with joy. It's a picture of a shallow emotional Decision. And what happens to the seed that's sown on rocky places? Verse 6 explains, When the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Verse 21 describes it this way, Since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes, he quickly falls away. So how can we reach the hasty-hearted person? Their resistance, I think, is minimized by verbalization. We must make a clear and concise presentation of the message. An appeal must be made, I think, to the intellect. We've got got to get them to feel and understand what this is all about. It's not about a decision. It's not about coming forward and kneeling on an altar and praying a prayer. It's not a one-time-in-your-life deal. This is a lifelong commitment of your life. Yes, amen. This is following Jesus for the rest of your life. With everything you've got surrendered to Him, you need to explain the cost of discipleship to somebody who has a hasty heart. Then there's the halfway heart. Matthew 13.7 tells us, Other seed fell among thorns. The thorny soil is the soil that's full of Satan's weeds. This is the person where both the good seed and the bad seed have been sown in his or her heart. And, and frankly, this person kind of wants to ride the fence. Notice what happens to this person with a halfway heart. According to verse 22, it says, The worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, choke it, making it unfruitful. So, how do we reach a half-hearted person? Again, their resistance is also minimized by verbalization. We must make a clear and concise presentation of the truth, the message. But this time our appeal is made to the will. Not the intellect. The halfway person, if I could just be really honest, they already know what they need to know. They they got it right up here. The problem is right here. Somebody said a lot of people are going to miss heaven by 18 inches. From their head to their heart. Because that message, yeah, they understand it. It's up here in their intellect, but it never was a surrender of the will. It never was a surrender of their heart to Jesus Christ. And we have to then appeal to their will. It's, it's being a bit persuasive. It's allowing the Holy Spirit then to convict and do His work in that person's life. Now, I've always liked stories that end in a positive way. <laughs> and such is the parable of the sower. The fourth and final soil is the honest heart. In the parallel passage of Luke 8 and verse 15, we read, But the seed on good soil is a picture of some people who hear the message and let it take root deeply in receptive hearts made fertile by honesty. With patient faithfulness, they bear good fruit. And of course, this is the soil of the heart that we long to encounter, is it not? <laughs> I mean, this is, the, this is the heart that we want to... Uh, run into out there as we're sharing the Gospels, we're sowing the seed, because this is the one who has no resistance really, who can just receive the seed and plant it deep within their heart and watch it grow and watch it become fruitful in his or her life. So the third source of resistance to evangelism comes from the soil or the hearer's heart. Although we long for people to respond to the good news with an honest heart, many times we'll encounter a hard heart or a hasty heart or a halfway heart instead. 
rediscovering evangelism, what the Bible teaches about being salt and light. This morning, we've talked about resistance to evangelism. Evangelism may happen naturally through the webs of our relationships with unbelieving family, friends, neighbors, work associates, schoolmates, and others in our circle of influence. However, evangelism does not happen without some resistance. From the parable of the sower in Matthew 13, we've identified three sources of this resistance. There's the seed, Satan's weeds. There's the sower, that's you and me. And there's the soil, that's the heart of the unbeliever. We must be aware of these sources of resistance so that we can stay on task and not be sidetracked. Why? Listen. What's that? Clock, yeah. Conservative estimates tell us that with every tick of the clock, every second, two people die and go to hell. 120 people every minute. 7,200 people every hour. 172,800 people die every day without Christ, unprepared for eternity. That's 1,209,600 people who go to hell each and every week. I think it's time for the church to wake up. (laughs) It's time for Christians to push through resistance and get serious about reaching the lost with the good news of God's plan of salvation through Jesus. Charles Spurgeon, a renowned British pastor who lived at the end of the 19th century, wrote this. I put it at the bottom of your notes, so just read it. follow along with me. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to be saved. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. Can I I hear a hearty amen to that? Amen. Amen. That's right. 